Good morning, everyone. My name is Rob. In case you don't know me, I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, we're continuing along in this generosity journey. Now, I introduced you to a man last week, Ward Brem. He's a philanthropist in Africa. And he had his life radically changed at the age of 40. He wrote a great book, which I just want to bring to your attention, Bigger Than Me. A very simple idea that there's a lot in this world that is bigger than we are. In fact, it's all about God. And uh, I commend this to you. If you want to check it out, read it. Uh, It's a great book. So in this book, he shares of a conversation that he had with Wheelock Whitney, a wealthy, highly respected business leader in the Twin Cities, involved in sports, that type of thing. Brum had asked Wheelock out to lunch, and he said to him, I'm interested in your perspective on money, what you think about it in general, seeing as you have a lot of it, you must have some opinion, strong opinion on the subject. Wheelock laughed and he shook his head and said, you know, our discussion is going to be a brief one since I, don't, I do have a theory, and since my theory is correct, I take it you're interested in money in the issue of how it affects people's lives. And Brem shook his head, yes. Wheelock explained, it certainly does that, affects people's lives. But as such, as a commodity, it's the most overrated one on the face of the earth. We all know what money can't do. It can't buy love. It can't buy happiness. Though people, no matter how much they deny it, still believe that it will. It does not create a sense of self-esteem. It often does the opposite, oddly enough. Nor does it protect us from chance or create a hedge against death. All true, Brem said. But it's a little-known fact that money does provide one thing. One and only one. This one thing can be a wonderful blessing or a terrible curse. What it provides is choice. You see, money buys the power to make decisions. Though it doesn't buy the wisdom to make decisions good ones. Now, isn't that a true statement? Have you ever thought about money that way, that money provides us with choices? Money buys the power to make a decision, and if that's the case, then money isn't really the issue. Money is not the root of all evil, as some people misquote the Bible verse. No, in fact, money can be a blessing. It can provide opportunities give economic freedom, the ability to make incredible contributions to the world, but it can also just as easily be used to buy a life of self-absorption, shattered relationships, wild addictions, unfettered greed, manipulation, family trauma, and ultimately emptiness. And as Willock Whitney puts it, all for the same price. So as we step into stewardship, What I am calling the discipline that comes before the disposition. You have to understand and learn how to handle your money before you can be generous with your money. As we talk about this, that this morning, we have to come to terms with our choices. And friends, that's not just 
some wise words, that is biblical. So let's first begin by taking a look at three dangerous choices. You have to understand something, okay? It's very important. We have to acknowledge the current reality. If you deny reality, well, guess what? You're going to continue to make the same mistakes. And here is a state of reality about our culture. You and I live in a consumer-driven economy that thrives on enticing people to spend money and depends on people going into debt. Did you know that? Did you know that over 80% of U.S. GDP is consumer debt? Over 80%. Meaning if people weren't in debt, we would collapse financially as a country. All day, every day, people in the marketing industry, consumer goods industry, are thinking of creative ways to create a sense of need in you. They're promoting a product, a service, a lifestyle change, a form of entertainment. And the underlying current is this. If you buy this, you're going to be better off. You're going to be happy. It's going to change your life. And to add to the danger, they give you this little plastic card with limits. And, uh, oh, just for a little exorbitant interest rate, you can have it right now. And with all of that hidden in us, we make these dangerous decisions. The first dangerous decision is the danger of spending what I don't have. Consider this about debt. The average American household debt is now more than double the average annual income of that family. Many families will spend decades trapped in a debt cycle. The average American has $38,000 of debt to their name. 13% of Americans believe that they will be in debt for the rest of their life. 40% do not believe that they will retire by the age of 70. So debt is a big problem. Now, that video that I showed at the beginning, it was a fun video. Uh, Sometimes when you consider a problem like this, it's good to step back from it for a moment and laugh about it. And I understand with debt that there's many reasons why people go into debt. But the biggest reason is our spending habits. We, we literally spend what we can't afford to buy. So debt is a trap. It's creditor calls. It's bills piling up. It's a mountain that grows bigger. And that leads then to actual physical consequences. If you look at health statistics of people in debt, these are some of the symptoms they face. Depression, anxiety, weight gain or weight loss, lack of concentration, loss of sleep, strained relationships, substance abuse, heart disease. What a dangerous decision. Proverbs 22.7 warned, just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is a servant to the lender. Romans 13.8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, many of our hands are tied. We can't be generous even if we wanted to be generous. And that's for this second dangerous decision. I want you to look at a graph real quick. 
Now, this graph represents the, the, the total disposable income of a person and, and how that money is allocated. And you'll notice right there that small little sliver where the big arrow is pointing that 1% to 3% of the average American's income is given towards some type of cash contribution or charitable giving. So think about it. When, when you walk into a generosity opportunity because of how your money is allocated already today, right now, you really can't make a decision to be generous in that moment. And when you think about that, and you think about how all of this money is spent, it means that 97 to 99% of my money is spent on who? Me. It's spent on me. Can I ask you a question? How do you define the word greed? Greed. What's your definition of greed? In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. But that is... That is one of those tougher warnings because greed is one of those things that can go undetected. It can fly under the radar. I mean, think about the sin of adultery. No one commits the sin of adultery and walks away and says, you know, I'm a pretty faithful person. I was faithful today. But you can be incredibly greedy and believe that you're generous. Uh, I, I think about it like this. It's, it's a, a word that we apply to anyone that's richer than us. It's like driving on the highway. Anyone driving too slow is an idiot. Anyone trying to pass you on the road is a maniac, just like our speed. Our greed is always the right one. But what does the opposite look like? Because if you're trying to define something, sometimes you have to set it up next to something which provides contrast to it. Solomon says that all day long the sluggard craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. I look at uh, Psalm 37, 25, and 26 as well. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. You know what is amazing about that verse to me? How often are we fearful to make a generous decision because we fear that in making that decision, it's going to impact my life adversely in some way. And here you have this psalmist who has lived an entire lifetime and he can't think of one instance where he's watched someone be generous and where that has impacted them adversely. Friends, you, you've heard it said, the numbers don't lie. So how are you spending your money? Where is it going? How much of it is spent on you? Leo Tolstoy wrote a story called How Much Land Does a Man Require? And in it, a man is told that he can have all of the land that he can encircle on foot by walking in one day's time. He begins his walk, and as you expect, 
The circle begins to get wider and wider as he starts looking at the properties that he's passing and thinking to himself, oh boy, I could have this one too. Now as the sun begins to go down, he discovers that he's far afield from the starting point and that he must circle back now. So in order to get back, he sprints all the way back to the place where he started. And he makes it. And the people are amazed. And then the man drops dead from overexertion. Turns out he needed only the six feet of earth that would be required to bury him. Now Jesus tells a similar story in Luke 12. A rich man farms and as he's farming, he is met with a dilemma. (laughs) The dilemma is that he's grown so many crops that he can't possibly consume all of these props. And so he asks himself the question, what should I do about this? Here's his answer. I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and the other goods, and then I'll sit back and say to myself, friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Well, God's response to that mentality is damning. He says, you fool." You will die this very night, and then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person, Jesus says, is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. I think Tim Keller hits the nail on the head when he says, where good things become ultimate things, we create alternate gods. Now, isn't that exactly what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 6, when he said that no one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one or love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Isn't that true? Well, let's go back to Wheelock Whitney's point. Money buys the power to make decisions though it doesn't buy the wisdom to make good ones. So how do I make good decisions when it comes to my money? Well, I would submit to you, remember last week I said there's this little jerk hobbit that lives in all of our hearts. And I would submit to you that making good decisions involves a radical change of mind. It begins with first that big truth that we came to look at last week. God owns everything And do you believe that? Do you believe that God owning everything doesn't just entail all the things outside of your little fiefdom, but the things inside of the fiefdom? And if it does, if God owns it all, well then how am I to think about my relationship to the money and the things that I presently have? Or for that matter, how am I even to think about the things that I have that are in myself, like my skills and and the life I have and the relationships I have? The Bible tells us always that we are to think of ourselves as a steward. Now, what is a steward? I like this definition. 
A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. This is what David is reveling in in Psalm 8, verse 6, when he says that you have put all things under humankind's feet. Back in creation, Genesis 1.28, God giving dominion was a stewardship responsibility to humanity on his behalf. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, explains that stewardship is, is not just a subcategory of the Christian life. Stewardship is the Christian life. That's what it's all about. What is stewardship except that God has entrusted us with life and time and, and talents and money and possessions and family and Jesus' blood-bought grace. That's what Jesus is getting at in that parable of the talents. We see in that parable that two stewards put the master's resources to work and he approves of them and says, well done, good and faithful servant, but, but one lazy steward takes all of those things that God's given him and he digs a hole and puts it in the ground and buries it. And he thinks that he's going to come back and be commended by the master, but when he meets the master, the master says, you wicked and slothful servant. You ought to have invested my money. Take that talent from him and, and give it to the one with ten talents. Do you think God is interested in people squandering the things that he's given them? Not at all. And oftentimes when people start using God's resources better, God entrusts them with more. I like to think of it like this. I have a heavenly company car. I have a card. I have vacation time. I have major benefits to enjoy, but also significant responsibilities to ensure that the priorities of heaven are seen and felt in my life. And one day, I'm going to stand before God and He's going to assess how I used company assets. I think God is going to ask questions like, why did you spend 97 to 99% of it on yourself? Why did you get yourself overextended with those things that I'd given you when, when you could have taken those things and, and maximized them for my kingdom? Why did you sit on that skill? That skill is so valuable. I could have used that for great purposes for my kingdom. So it's our responsibility, isn't it? God's entrusted us with many things. The big question is, how am I going to use those things? So let's think about our choices again. How can we make powerful choices that will free us up to be generous? I want to talk about five powerful choices the first powerful choice is the power of contentment. Let's go back to Tolstoy's story for a moment. Imagine if the man had stopped walking earlier and he turned around and at a leisurely place he made his way back to the starting point. Well, we all know what would happen there, don't we? You see, contentment is a decision we make. It's not, friends, an emotion we experience. 
Contentment is drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is the standard of living that I choose to live with. And from there, I'm going to think proactively about how I can be generous with the resources that God has given me. Now I know you guys all have Augur's words memorized from the Proverbs. Proverbs 30, right? You have Augur's words memorized. So you know just how powerful these verses are. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, where it says, Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who's the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Do you hear his heart? God, I just want to be content. Don't put more things on my plate than I can handle. Because I know me. I know, Lord, that if I was Jeff Bezos rich, I might not handle that well. And I need your help, God. I think Paul knew something about contentment. You see, he knew that contentment is really the answer to a lot of the things that ail us. Anxiety, stress, worry. He says, I learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Can you imagine how that might change a lot of the therapy industry if we just learned to be content with where we are in life, with what we have in life, with who God's made us to be in life. That's the secret. Paul says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. Another powerful choice is the power of a plan. You've heard me say this before, but if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So once you've learned to move away from the heart disposition of greed to that of contentment, you need to now assess the resources God has given you and ask yourself, how am I doing with these? Let me give you a couple of steps, basic steps that come with building a plan. The first is setting priorities. Do you have a job that takes care of your needs, that provides for your basic needs in life, you know, we live in a culture today that tells us to throw caution to the wind and just chase your dreams. But friends, dreams don't put food on the table. Jobs do. And having a job that can take care of your basic needs is a huge priority. The second is making a budget, understanding how I'm spending, making hard decisions to no longer spend on certain things, leveraging money against debt, and making generous decisions for the sake of God's kingdom. Building an emergency fund. Realizing that there is a wisdom to having money put away. Get this news article title I just saw. 40% of Americans don't have $400 in the bank for emergency expenses. Is that wise? Is that wise? The Bible has a big word in the wisdom category called prudence the prudent proverbs 22 3 says sees danger and hides himself but the simple go on and suffer for it 
Another one, choose to avoid debt. Again, Proverbs 22, the borrower is the servant of the lender. Now, you might be saying to yourself, look, that's a simple plan, but I'm not a money-minded person. That's not my thing. I got to tell you, friend, if, if you haven't signed up for financial peace, you've got to do that. And the Bible also talks to us about surrounding ourselves with wise counselors. So two of the people that are leading that class, Craig Campbell, who's sitting up here in the front, and he's going to be mad at me for pointing him out, but he's a big, <laughs> tall guy. Craig has a huge heart for people. And um, he's a non-judgmental guy. He's a gracious guy. And we talk all the time, and he just says, I want to see God's people freed up. I just want to see them freed up and out of debt. Friends, don't miss an opportunity to be in financial peace with Craig. Let's talk about another powerful decision. Number three, the power of staying on plan. See, good money habits are just that. They are habits. Habits, habits are those settled or regular practices. So we find ourselves in debt because of poor habits. Now, habits are formed by creating neural pathways in your brain. So a lot of the bad habits with spending are unfiltered, impulsive decisions because we have set up a pattern in our life where we spend because we see something and there's no process. So you could actually get into financial peace. You could go through the whole course, and if you don't change the habits to stay on the plan, guess what? You'll be right back where you were when you started. So now you have to find ways of holding yourself accountable and also intentionally reviewing what you're doing. And hopefully Ramsey will give you a little bit of coaching in that as you get into that class. Number four, the power to put money to good use. In Ramsey's book, Total Money Makeover, he says this, after years of studying, teaching, and even preaching on this subject across America, I can find only three good uses for money. And believe me, one of those good uses for Ramsey is not debt. Okay, That man hates debt. But he says this, money is good for fun. Money is good to invest. And money is good to give. Isn't that cool to know that God's not a killjoy? God delights, takes pleasure in watching his children have fun. Did you know that? I, I love that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. So yes, you can use some of your money to enjoy life. But just remember, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. Right? A, a spoonful of honey, very good. A jar of honey in one sitting, not good. Money is good to invest. So the wise stewards in that parable, what did they do? They took their talents and they multiplied the talents for the sake of God's kingdom. So many years ago, I was standing in Togo, West Africa, and J.J. Alderman was casting a vision about a camp that they would like to build in Togo, West Africa. And as I was standing there looking at this bare plot of land, listening to this man dream, God gave me something in that moment. He said, 
I want you to work on building wealth so that one day you could be standing in a situation like this and you could say, I would love to write that check. And I'm trying. I mean, I don't, it's God's money. It's his resources. But I would love to be able to do that. Katie would love to be able to do that, though she does need to protect our retirement very often. Money is also good to give, and to me, that's the best use, frankly. It brings me the most joy. I love how Harry talks about it. He has a bank account. He calls it his fun money. <laughs> so he's mingling two of those things together, isn't he? Number five, the power of tithing. Now that's a big decision. What is that? Tithing is a conscious faith decision to give God 10% of my gross income. Uh, here at OVC, we, we make this a standard of membership. We have these five practices we call every member, and one of them is give 10. Tithe of your income. Now, why tithe to your local church? Some of us hear conversations like this and we recoil and we think to ourselves, again, maybe because of some experiences we've had or maybe because we've just drawn some wrong conclusions, but it seems like they only ever talk about money. I think you've been here with me long enough to know that that's not only what I ever talk about. But I hope I've changed your mind on something. I hope first that you don't think of it as your money anymore. And another thing I hope I can change your mind on is stop thinking about the church as the nebulous day. This is our family. This is our church. We all get the privilege of giving and contributing. We all get to enjoy the privilege of taking care of this space, of seeing that beautiful family who is praying and thanking God that their children are being raised in the Lord and in James's ministry where they're going up to New Hampshire to snow camp to expose kids to the Gospels. Paul Bothwell's ministry where we're able to partner with them in Missions Door in Boston and see churches planted and on and on it goes. You see, the tithe really boils down to a faith commitment. It's no different than that ancient Hebrew farmer or shepherd who God essentially said, will you trust me with 10% of the things that I am giving to you? In fact, will you trust me with the first 10%? Now, that's a powerful act of faith. Sets the tempo for everything. It's his money. If he wants 10% of it, Lord, you can have it. It's yours. Prophet Malachi's words apply to us. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and therefore by put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Can you imagine if every member tithed? Could you imagine? I think we'd be blown away. Acts 1.8 gives us our mission, doesn't it? It says that we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, and that's my dream. Can you imagine if as a church we were able to abundantly, healthily supply the ministry 
whether here locally with local missions that God here, has here. That's our Jerusalem. Or again, church plants that are starting to spring up and need to spring up all over the place around this northeast. That's our Judea and Samaria. Or to take the Gospel to those unreached people in the world who don't even know there's a Jesus to believe in. That's the ends of the earth. Friends, imagine if Osterville Baptist Church was known as a generous church. Generous to the people in the village of Osterville and and then more broadly in Barnstable, they said that place is generous. And then church missionaries, church planters in the Northeast, they all look and they're like, you know, I, I know a lot of churches. I interact with a lot of churches. But that little church in Osterville Main Street is generous. And imagine if people who don't even speak our language still somehow know how to say Osterville Baptist Church. Because we're generous. Because we tithe faithfully. Because we give more than we keep. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, wouldn't it? I'd like to see it. But now, we come to the big question. Where are you at? Where are you? How are you leveraging your choices? Are you being a wise steward? Everyone's somewhere. Everyone's somewhere. I remember it was several years back now that many of us were participating in a, a 5K run for Isaac Schrager. And I got to tell you, I, I just praise the Lord today for Isaac's health. Every time I see Isaac running around the church, there's just a lot of joy. As a pastor, uh, I, I can't even tell you how much that fills my heart. But while we were getting ready for this, I was taking inventory of my physical condition and realizing that I was not ready to run a 5K. So you've heard of the couch to 5K buildups. Well, I decided that I needed to engage in one of these, but I would just cut out the middle portion. I'd get off the couch and I'd run the 5K. And uh, you say to yourself, who needs all that other stuff? Same difference, right? <laughs> well, let me tell you, it's a big difference. So it's, it's wise, isn't it, to take healthy steps to build our capacity and endurance. So everyone's somewhere. Some of you are doing pretty well in terms of how you're allocating your money. You're, you're ready, actually, to be more generous. Others of you, though, you're in that place right now where your first big step is to get free from debt so that you can start giving. Here's what I've come to understand about God and His grace and His goodness. God is pleased with heart responses. Okay? Uh, Sometimes we get stuck because we think, I'm not in the ideal. I can't be in the ideal. I guess I'm just going to always kind of displease God in this area of my life. That's not what God's interested in. He's like the father who watches the son take the first Uh, pedals on their bike as they're learning to ride the bike or the kid taking the first steps or any of those kind of big major growth moments in a person's life. God takes so much pleasure in that. So he's pleased when we come to him and say, God, this is where I'm at and I'm ready to make a big step. My big step isn't necessarily the tithe right now. I just need to trust you to start giving consistently. That's okay. Okay. 
God's pleased with that. Don't stay there, but he's pleased with that. I want you to take a look inside of your program. I put these little cards in there. And the, the little card just simply says, generosity, next step. Generosity, next step. Today, I choose this next step. I don't want you to do anything with this right now. I want you to take this card home. You're not going to give it to me. You're not going to turn it into the church or something like that. But I want you to go home and the first thing I want you to do is assess. If you're married, sit down with your spouse, single, within yourself. Where am I at? And then start praying to God and say, what's the next step for me? For some of you, you might need to choose to get out of debt. Maybe you can only give what you can, but you, you really, the main thing that you need to think about is getting out of debt. This, for some of you, it's just to con- start considering giving in a consistent way. For others, it's to start saying, you know what, I've been giving this amount of money, but I really need to trust God with a percentage of my income. And maybe that's 5% for you, I don't know. Others, it's committing to the tithe. For others, it's committing to trust God with a sacrificial gift beyond your tithe. So I want you to assess, then I want you to pray, and then thirdly, I want you to commit. That might involve a spiritual friend that you have in the church saying, I need to be held accountable here. You're not telling them exactly what's going on, but just I'm taking my next step of generosity, and would you hold me accountable to that? I want to do this. I want to be faithful to God in this way. Church, can you imagine what we could do if we all get in on this together and be a generous church? Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. And um, as I think of all the good gifts, Lord, that we have from you, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude. For me personally, that involves my children. Um, what a blessing and privilege and responsibility it is to raise them. My, of course, my wife Katie, who everyone here knows is way out of my league. Uh, we just praise you, Lord, for the many manifold blessings that we have in this world. Sometimes we get stuck and we think, oh man, look at all that's wrong with my life. But God, there's so much good and so it's from there, Lord, from our gratitude, we, we just pray that our hearts, our minds, our attitudes would, would flow with generosity. Let Osterville Baptist Church be a generous church, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.